Hey everyone, Sarah here. Please note that this episode of the Right Now podcast contains mention of suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, please talk to someone you trust, contact your local crisis center, or if you're here in the United States, please do call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. This is the Right Now podcast with Sarah Werner. Episode 154, Selling Art or Selling Out, an interview with Asa Merritt. Welcome to Right Now, the podcast that helps all writers, aspiring, professional, and otherwise, to find the time, energy, and courage you need to pursue your passion and write. Hello, friends. I am Sarah Werner, your host, and today I am back again with a good friend and an incredible writer, Aza Merritt. And I'm going to, I have a, I have a bio here that I'm very excited to share because Asa has done so many incredible things. So get a load of this. A former international reporter for NPR, Vice Sports, The Guardian, and ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast, no big deal, Asa brings a compassionate documentary eye to ambitious fictional projects. His one-woman play about mass movements, True Believer, had a sold-out run in New York City. To research that piece, Asa traveled to Cairo to meet with underground performers who helped ignite the Arab Spring. For his new Audible original podcast, Six Sermons, starring Oscar nominee Stephanie Hsu from Everything Everywhere All at Once, Asa spent a month embedded with a team of pastors at a Lutheran church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Six Sermons is dedicated to the actor and musician Kaz Lisk, who died by suicide in Moscow in 2017. Asa lives with his family in Mexico City, and we would love to extend a warm welcome to the show. Welcome. Hi. Thanks, Sarah. I, this is so exciting. I'm, I'm grateful to be here, and uh, thanks for taking the time to talk. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so excited, too. So hello. Uh, I was going to say, tell us a little bit about yourself, but we heard a little bit about yourself, and it's incredible. You've done so many things. So you have a new project coming out. I would love to hear just how that started uh, creative impetus-wise, if I may. For sure. Yeah. Um, I, I love this question because this project has really clear roots. Unlike other projects, this one, the sort of emotional seed was very one-to-one. A, a good friend died by suicide. That happened. I had feelings I didn't know what to do with mm. and needed to do something with. And I was like, okay, I'll try to write about this. And then the sort of, okay, it takes place in this in the church you know, I didn't grow up going to church, you know, that that was a real kind of exploration for me in this project. But that had a really clear origin too, which was I did a freelance gig for a seminary, where I was uh, listening. Yeah, it was it was amazing. And I was listening to sermons. Um, And it was, uh, it was a workshop of sermons with sermons, older, sort of Mm -hmm. master ministers or master preachers, mentoring up and coming ministers about the art and rhetoric of sermons. So I was just listening to sermons. I was like, Oh my God, this is incredible audio. And so that, you know, that was sort of the formal seed. And I knew right away I could build 
an audio structure or, you know, an audio story with that kind of formal spine using sermons. I love that. And this has a special connection with me. Uh, my dad was actually a Lutheran pastor and I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So I feel like there's a little bit of synergy there, which I appreciate. Wow. That's so wild. Okay. Mm -hmm. Lutheran wow. pastor. Yeah. So looking at this like intensely personal experience leading to an intensely personal story, what was that process like taking something from this raw emotional experience? Did you find yourself um, better able to process things? What did that whole process look like? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was um, you know, creating this character, Pastor Alexis, that's Stephanie Shu's character, was a real opportunity to kind of map my own feelings. And, uh, mm. you know, the, the, the beauty of writing is, you know, you can just keep going and write and write and write and write and write. So the other formal convention of the show, or there's a handful, but another significant one specific to this world of faith is, is prayers. We hear her praying. And so, you know, upon writing drafts and drafts and drafts, these are essentially kind of personal meditations or journal entries or sort of reckonings, like with my own thoughts about Kaz, my friend, and what happened and why it happened and how and who and all the things um, that eat you up when you lose someone um, in general, particularly to, to suicide. And sort of writing her prayers and writing her sermons and, and writing her reckoning with this was an opportunity to just go in every nook and cranny of my feelings about it. And of course, only a handful made it into the show, right? Of course, from those you distill mm -hmm. what serves your story and what serves your drama. Mm -hmm. But the process itself was um, vast. It's a long show. It's almost four hours long. It's 12 episodes. And the original version of it was much longer. So it really enabled me, which was a mandate for the project. You know, it was mm -hmm. like, hey, we want, this to, we want this to be an epic, which was cool. I think it was going to be anyway, but it really was like I, I had to explore every nook and cranny of those feelings um, to, to, to produce this story. That's really fascinating. I know that many of my listeners do use um, writing as a way to process their feelings and to tell their own very, very personal stories. Were there things that you found that were important to you that ended up getting cut? And how did you deal with that part of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, it was fine. No, I, I just love it every time, you know, I rip my heart out. And someone's oh, yeah. like, oh, this isn't, we don't want this. No, thanks. No, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that, right? I mean, this is, you know, it's coming on Audible. Audible is a, is a platform that, that caters to a wide audience. You know, they're trying to bring in as many listeners as possible. It's a really ambitious project. It's really literary you know there are sermons you know it, it's it's a demanding listen um compared to a lot of other audio properties that that one can turn on and so consistently kind of the editorial was cutting simplifying a lot of what i sort of treasured most mm -hmm. which was this really kind of existential explorations on that pastor alexis is going through like a real kind of you know, I'm a big dork and a big reader and, and, and just kind of like geek out on like close reading, which I think the contemporary Protestant church excels at. And, you know, so the sermons were much longer. They were much more kind of academically rigorous. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, <laughs> lo and behold, <laughs> they're like, we need to make this one quarter of the length. 
But, you know, that was like a real, that's just like growing. I was like, you know, okay, I, I need to see this for what this is. Like, this is not a one woman show that I'm putting up in New York City to, you know, a 50 person room. You know, this is something that's trying to meet a wide audience. It's like, okay, how can I meet this halfway? How can I um, embrace, you know, and I think, and, and I know that you've, you've been through this journey to some extent when you're working with executives, um, working for these major entertainment companies. It's just, there's just, they're coming to the project with radically different sets of priorities and imperatives and mandates. And I think the task of running something personal and, you know, it's a real balancing act between advocating for what you care so much about, the parts that you won't, the hills you will die on mm. artistically, yet not being the person who won't bend. And for me, you know, this was my first project of this kind. And for me, that was a huge part of the, of the education. Mm. I feel you on that. I had, I, like you said, I have had a, not exactly the same experience, but a similar experience where I was working with executives to tell a story that I felt very personally connected to and figuring out the balance of when to put your foot down, if you should put your foot down, what is worth it to you? Because it, it ended up for me being a I feel like not even concessions as much as like little sacrifices. What will I sacrifice um, so that this can live on? And like, was there anything that you absolute that they were very adamant that you take out that you absolutely insisted be kept in? Or were you pretty chill going with what they wanted? Oh, gosh. I mean, there were definitely, you know, this is... Uh, like for everyone's benefit, I'm not like a war historian, but I'm sure there's someone out there who could like create analogies of certain like battles that were just fought for weeks on end. Um, <laughs> but, it, but yeah, there was, you know, the, the opening, you know, the beginning minutes of the show, there was an enormous amount of discussion around that. The, the, the basic DNA remained from like the very first draft to what will be released tomorrow. Uh, but I mean, that was like a real kind of test and a real... That was a place where I, I did ultimately have to work very hard to find a compromise that I was comfortable with because there was really a different vision, but we were able to do it. And that was, and that was great. And I, I feel fortunate that in general, I had a really great relationship with the executive producer on the project and we were able to, there was just a give and take. And I think, I think there are things in that show that he wishes weren't. And there's things in that show that like, I wish weren't, you know, and it was just kind of like a very like, I trust you here and I trust you here. And, you know, we're just going to do this negotiation. An analogy that came once there was like a series, it was a notes moment. And uh, I had all these ideas that I wanted to do. And, I, and I, I approached it as if I was kind of writing a bill to like Congress or something like a spending bill, mm. like knowing advanced knowing that I'm, I'm going to have to like make concessions. Right. So it's, you're kind of like, all right, I'll do all these, like knowing from the jump that they're not going to let me do a H and L are like, forget about it. But what I really want is like B and D. So I'm like, oh, okay nice. guys, fine. I don't need H. I can live. I can live enough. Fine. Take my H when really I'm just like, yes, B made it through. And uh, you know, it's just like a dance. And I think I was fortunate, you know, that makes it sound kind of like Machiavellian, um, which, you know, there's an element of that, but I was fortunate enough, generally speaking, to have a, a positive relationship in terms of the give and take. And I never felt, you know, we had one casting decision that was vetoed, but we ended up with somebody awesome. So, you know, it all worked out. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing all of that too. I know that for 
uh, a lot of my audience, this is a completely foreign process for them. Like this is not something that they've yet, and I'm going to choose my words carefully here, gotten to experience. And I know this is something a lot of people really look forward to is the day that they can work with a team to tell their story. What would you say are the benefits of working with a team like this as opposed to telling the story word for word exactly how you wanted it uh, without any editorial messings with? Is there a story that you would ever insist on doing all by yourself, full indie with no compromises? Gosh, I mean, all right, Sarah, like, let's uh, just get out the, the, the bottle of whiskey and like set aside two, two nights uh, to answer that question properly. Right. So the, the main thing that's happening with your when you're working with a, an audible is that you're, you know, you're, you're making commercial work and the sort of implications of that are many. And that, that, that cuts to like the core of like what your project as a writer is, you know, and I, I think that's a question that you interrogate really well on this podcast. And I think it's kind of like for some people compromising is not what they got in the game for. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I didn't come here to put my soul out in these prayers only for them to be cut down to four sentences. My friend died. You jerk. Like, why are you doing this? You know what I mean? And it's just, that's like a hundred percent not what a lot of people want to happen when they, when they write. Um, and so I think like the decision you're making is, is like, to me, the biggest thing is like, Hey, I can really reach people with this, mm. right. That the reality of our media system is one in which there are only a handful of gatekeepers that determine the vast majority of content and media available to us is just quite simply how it is today, at least. Um, hopefully that'll change or evolve. But, you know, this platform does have like millions of subscribers and I do have important things to say about suicide. And I do want this story to reach people. And so for me, you know, that was sort of a, a calculus that I was able to navigate, not always well. Mm. I think it'll be much better next time this was my first commercial project you know i came up like paying for my own plays and like tiny stages in new york you know and this was like a totally different thing and there was a lot of pain there because mm. it's just there's just such a different orientation to the material from the folks who are paying your paychecks from the people who are deciding whether the show even comes out mm. i mean it's just so you know so i remember you talking about sort of grief and mourning that can happen with, with work. And mm. I, I think that really, when you spoke about that in Austin, that really um, uh, resonated for me because it's just like so much is on the line. What I will say is that like, you know, it's important also to recognize that you don't always know best mm. about your work, right? Which seems super obvious. But I guess what I would say in that is like, you might immediately know, oh, wow, my work is so much better because of this friend and this friend and like this mentor and this teacher. You have your sort of inner circle mm -hmm. of creatives that you rely on, you know, your first readers, and they give you those insights that just completely revitalize the draft and push it and forward. Like, you know, you might feel like you already have that infrastructure and you might say, oh, well, I don't need a suit. <laughs> yeah. I don't need the notes of somebody who's only thinking about the bottom line. And... I guess it's like in the course of this project, 
I try to become a little bit more humble about those notes and just not take them, you know, not see them personally, mm-hmm. just kind of like see them as a perspective, not sort of like a comment on me as a writer stuff. It's like, okay, here's a perspective and this is a smart perspective, you know? It's not necessarily, you know, if I did have unlimited funds to, to finance all my own projects, like I might not take this note, but this does come from a place that has been thought through, even though it's a different line of thinking than what I did. You know what I mean? So I think that there's like a, I think honestly, the other thing is like, that's the only way to get through it. And that's where I say with some success more than others, because so much, I was so bitter about so many notes. I would come around, but I would just steam and fume about like oh my god they don't get it or like how dare they cut all that that's so critical to like the core of this piece and I would just steam about it and uh, it really ate me up and took a lot of emotional energy that I think the future writer showrunner of me is gonna like be able to temper and Mm -hmm. obviously that no one likes it when you're when your work just gets sort of stomped on and not that, you know, but even that, even that articulation, it's like, well, that makes it sound personal. And it's, it's just not. I appreciate you saying that so much. It would be so easy to brush over that. And, you know, and you didn't, you were, thank you. I, I what I'm saying is I really appreciate you sharing how you actually felt And some of that bitterness at getting notes on how dare someone else tell me how to improve my own story. But What an excellent point to say that there's a reason that the executives are where they are. And it's because they are doing a very specific job that is very different from yours, but also, you know, no less necessary. And I I think that's just such a good perspective to carry into the project. I love that you were willing to talk about your personal growth as a writer throughout this process and receiving notes and learning to be humble and realizing that next time, oh, I might expend a little bit less energy feeling bitter or angry at this point and this point. How did your story grow and change through the process? I know it got a little bit, well, the sermons got shorter, but was there anything that really developed or blossomed in a way that you were surprised to see? Well, I would say in the in the most macro, uh, the script is just better than it would have been hadn't there been the pandemic. Oh, go on. Yeah, just from a really actual like practical standpoint, although it's just not the kind of thing I would have realized. It's just there was more time for more notes. Mm. And it's just kind of like when you have a project that's four hours and 12 episodes, it's like it usually can get better, right? And it's kind of like that was what happened. It was like, okay, well, we're not going to production, so let's read this script one more time. Mm. And that led to this complete kind of, there's a real, there was like a plot direction that like, you know, I wrote a whole new kind of like appendage to the, to the story, which ended up, you know, did not remain in the final version, but like it just pushed every story element farther along. So I guess it it just at, at that level, that was kind of like a revelation You know, the show, a lot of it is about reckoning with suicide, you know, and kind of really smart people came on and off the project. You know, there was some drama and some really talented minds were on it and then left, which was super unfortunate. But because 
it took this project was five years in the making. So some of it was drama, mm-hmm. some of it was just like time. Like people were like, oh well, I, I'm not working here anymore. Or like, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, here you're the new person. So a lot of people came in with their perspectives, and everyone, particularly towards the suicide piece, mm-hmm. right? Um, and a big part of this story is kind of engaging with, oh, why why did this person take their life? And it was really there was like a collective wisdom moment that happened, I think, by so many people having to engage with that part of the story and kind of adding their two cents being like, okay, well, I know it's important to you that it's not clear why this man did it, but X, Y, or Z, or at the end, there's, you know, there really is at this top of the show that a man dies by suicide and, and we don't ever really get any clue of why it happened. And for me, that's actually, one of the specialist things about this story is like that particular articulation of, of cause. But a lot of people wanted, like crave that explanation of like, oh, why did, why, why do you do it? Da, 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 from a real kind of narrative perspective. And that was just a cool unraveling of like, I mean, it just gets sort of dense, but like ideas of how we tell stories about suicide and like, what does it mean? You know, the the meta questions about responsibility of writers and accountability in terms of what kind of narratives about suicide we're putting out into the world. And I would say I was like relatively clear headed about my thoughts about that when I set out to do it, but mm-hmm. became even more clear headed as the course of the process, because so many really smart people did have specific and different reactions to that overall concern. Mm. Beautifully put. And I appreciate you talking us through that too. Sort of looking at how this whole project started, was this something that you wrote a pitch for and then pitched to them? And if so, what was it like having such a taboo subject as the center of your pitch? Yeah, I could talk about pitching all day. Love pitching. Uh, I mean, I, I do, but uh, yeah, I mean, also facetious. Um, yeah. Uh, yes, I pitched Audible directly. And that was, you know, that's kind of a little mini hustle lesson and how that came about. I was able to leverage a certain kind of success in nonfiction radio mm. to open the doors to Audible. Yes. That's kind of, that was like a cool, you know, my early ambitions had been in dramatic writing. I was a playwright, da, 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 da. And then I worked in journalism for five years and it, it was kind of just a lesson of like, oh, all you need is like juice. All you need mm. to like, oh, this guy like made something for ESPN. He's probably really talented. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. it, like alarmingly, oh, you must be able to write a good audio trauma. Like no <laughs> I mean, one cares. That I, yeah, obviously. Right. Like if anything qualified me to write audio drama, it was like being a playwright for like a decade. So that was kind of like alarming, um, but also useful for those out there just kind of you can really leverage any kind of success, I think, to get what you want in another area was my experience at least. But yes, I sent them like a three to five page little deck with the story and pitched it directly to Audible, which I think is much harder to do now, but this was five years ago. Mm. And, you know, thus it began. And it was so daunting, you know, there was never a guarantee that it would get made. You know, I was told that I would own you know, none of the the derivative rights, you know, mm. I didn't, I didn't have representation, I didn't have a lawyer, I was so eager uh, for any opportunity to make something to, to actually be paid anything to mm. write, you know, that's, that's what we're all fighting for, da, 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 da. And like, here it is. And it's just like, hindsight's twenty twenty. but, but I, I took the opportunity. That's how it started. And it did take five years, because I was 
the, the, the scripting phase took a long time because I was freelancing, you know, surprise, they weren't paying me enough money <laughs> to like <laughs> only work on that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and then, and then, and then uh, COVID halted productions. And yeah, that's how it started. Thank you for sharing that. So I've been doing the Right Now podcast for, oh my gosh, eight years now. And I've heard so much advice. You just said something that has never been talked about on this show before. And that is leveraging prior success. And like now that you've said it, it seems obvious. Like, yes, you have to, you know, essentially work your way up, but there's different ways you can work your way into different positions. And I, I really hope that listeners took that to heart and that that resonated with you that you don't have to be a, you know, award-winning children's picture book author in order to write a children's picture book. You could leverage experience you have in other areas. Boy, I thank you, Ace. I appreciate you saying that so much. I think that that's something a lot of people need to hear. Yeah. And I think, I think it could be even farther than in this case it was like, okay, I can leverage, leverage nonfiction audio into fiction audio. I have a friend here, you know, we kind of have this like big brother, like kind of vibe and she's right out of college. And so she's my chess teacher. So I, I play a lot of chess and I go to this chess club and, um, you know, it's this family of chess masters. Uh, you know, her, her, her father was like this, this, uh, this master and all this. And, uh, you know, so she, of course, you know, she, she's like the Mexico city champion of chess and all this, you know, when she was 16. And, oh and so, and so she's, she's like having her, I'm out of school moment. I don't know what to do applying for these jobs. And, and like, you know, we're doing some like role playing some of the stuff we're doing some language exchange and all this. And she's telling me about her like degree and the courses she studied. I'm like, Sinet, like, why are you not talking about your chess achievements? You know, she's like, Oh, it's not relevant at all. And it's like, yeah, but come on, like, this is something you have such, and it's, it's, it's so personal. Like mm-hmm. you just flip the switches for all of us when we talk about something that we do well, that we have like a pride in and, and a mm-hmm. certain expertise in and all, then it doesn't even matter. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I just can imagine whatever like telecommunications executive who was interviewing her and Sinette launching into, you know, the story of how she won the Mexico city championship at 16. And it's just like, I dare you to not give me a job. Right. So <laughs> I, I think mean, it's like, yeah. and so, yeah, like I think leveraging what you've got can go a long way because here's the other thing that there are like no good ideas. Mm. Right. So it's like, if you have a good idea and some kind of rock to stand on, mm. I think a lot of doors will open because there is such a hunger for just quality stories and quality pitches and you all have heard this before, but I think like what's important is, is what you really need is like just confidence and a good story. Because if you have a good story, it'll open doors and it's worth a lot of money, like mm-hmm. quite simply. Mm-hmm. The idea of focusing on what you do have that's valuable and not focusing on what you lack. That's, that's such a good, that's such a good takeaway. Focusing on what you do have. <laughs> Okay. So when you were pitching your show to Audible, you did not have representation. And when we talk about representation, we're talking about an agent, a manager, someone who can kind of walk with you through this process to make sure you don't get screwed. 
this is such a difficult thing for a lot of, especially new writers or people who are looking to really take their writing to the next level to work with is how do I get an agent if I don't already have something published? It's a very chicken egg thing. And you talked about kind of walking into this without representation and ending up not getting, you know, any of the rights or anything. Do you have any regrets with that? Is just, do you think that's just how the system works? Or would you have any advice for people who are just getting into this process? I think that it was, it was a decision I made with a lot of information. I think ultimately is the best decision. It was, mm. it was an emerging artist contract. So what that meant was it was a weak contract in a lot of ways. The pay was low. There was not derivative rights, but what it did mean is it was kind of a boilerplate mm-hmm. and they were handing them out. The whole contract, if the show made it all the way to release, was a $10,000 contract. So they're just throwing them out mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You know, and not to negate, like $10,000 is $10,000, but, you know, to write four hours is not a lot of money and for Audible is not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So what was appealing about it is like, I knew the contract was going to go through. There wasn't, it was going to go through. There wasn't going to be like a negotiation period. There wasn't going to be, it's basically I could sign this thing and I could start writing and I might get an audio drama. Mm-hmm. And that is what happened. Like that is what happened. And to this larger point about the strength of your story, this project was promoted by the time it was all said and done. It started out what would have been one of their kind of lowest tier projects mm-hmm. But people got excited about it. The executive got excited about it. He really believed in it. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it then jumped to a whole other tier and there's more money for more actors and more marketing. And and so once we went to a production mode, I was able to earn more money as the showrunner. At that Mm. point, I did have a lawyer and I did negotiate and advocate. And so it's really hard to turn down an opportunity. I don't think I would have done it differently I credit myself for asking the questions, you know, for making somebody point blank tell me, yes, if this goes to television, we don't even have to put your name on it. You know, like making someone tell me that I think it's important to like ask those pointed questions because that's what gets you respect down the road Mm. because people can tell if you're experienced. So even if you aren't experienced and you sort of, articulate, Hey, listen, this is, am I getting this right? You know, you just, you're just kind of playing dumb. Like my understanding is this contract, let me get this straight. So it's 300 pages and uh, it's going to be like a two-year process. And we're looking at $10,000. And if I'm reading this right here in section three, it says that if it goes to TV, Amazon owns everything. Right. And it's just like, you know, the answer, like, you know, you know, the answer, they know the answer, but I'm a real believer of just advocating and just like, you just need to like say it because it does change the way they think of you. Yes. And that does give you leverage mm. creatively mm. because all of a sudden you're a, pro- you're a professional who's taking a bad deal, not an amateur who's getting run over. And if you're presenting as a professional, that is going to garner respect, right? Mm. Even if it's not going to get you paid <laughs> on your first project. That is so good. And again, I've had a similar experience. I did get to negotiate on my contract. The downside of that was it took two full years to get the contract signed. I'm talking 
whatever that ends up being 700 and whatever days to sign a contract. And so then it was forever before we could start writing and all of that stuff. And so I'm curious, a lot of writers identify as introverts or, you know, shy people or like, oh, I'm a writer. I don't talk to people. Maybe that's a little extreme, but you know, there's the whole like, oh, I'm up in my little ivory tower and then I send the pages off. It sounds like you're much more involved as a writer creator in the development of your work so much that it's almost kind of networking. It's getting people excited about your work. It's getting people excited about working with you. Do you have any advice there for our listeners? I, oh yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a decision you have to make. Mm. Like for me, there just became a moment that was like, I want to be a working writer. I want to make a living writing. Mm. And that just changed the way I made decisions. And if that becomes sort of a mandate for you, you know, I like, I just kind of got, I was like getting older and tired of making money doing other things to pay for theater and stuff. So it's, it's kind of a mindset, right? Mm. It's kind of like, I'm trying to make a living here. I'm not a genius, right? Like, so I have to tell stories or I have to write and pitch stories that have a good chance of selling. Like if I'm sitting on 10 ideas, the one I'm most excited with might not be the most commercially viable. The good news is I think you can have this mindset without selling out or cutting yourself short as an artist at all, right? I like a thousand percent do not think these two things are, you know, yeah. You can maintain your integrity as an artist, but still put on a hat of like, okay, listen, I'm trying to like not wait tables. I'm trying to not tutor. I'm trying to not do that. What are the decisions I can make to empower me and put me in a position where I am getting paid to like put words on a page? Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, that that's like a mindset that one has to take. So you put, but that's just sort of one answer to the way you put the question. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in terms of advice, though, like, fortunately, again, there's just so many amazing creatives out there that it's actually not hard to find people who both inspire you intellectually and creatively and represent the kind of folks who you aspire to professionally or are the kind of people who could help you professionally. I mean, again, it's kind of like find your people. Obviously, sometimes you're like creative soulmate might not be the person who's necessarily going to position you best for a professional career where you're making enough money to support your family, Hmm. but like it totally can be, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think there's just, I think it's like really rat, like surrounding yourself with people who have the same professional and creative priorities. And then kind of just, I mean, the hardest part is first identifying those priorities Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, Mm. which is like where I'm at right now is I'm in this like kind of totally new moment. I'm kind of Mm -hmm. starting over in the sense that I live in Mexico. I've lived here five years. It's really important to me to work where I live and be part of the entertainment industry here. Like I can speak Spanish. Can I write beautiful drama in Spanish? Definitely not. And it's like whole, it's kind of a whole moment where I'm redetermining what those priorities are in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But I think once you have identified them, it's just being like strategic about being like, where am I going to invest my time and resources who inspires me? Who believes in me? Who mm. who can who can help me? But I think I think there's a way to do to like quote unquote hustle in a way that's true to yourself and your ideals. It's just kind of deciding where to put your energy. Mm. 
Yeah, one of the things that I realized in getting people excited about my own work was just to show that I was excited about my own work to them and to have people share that excitement. And so just being genuine and and really being in love with the work is, oh, it's so magical. Because, yeah, it's so true. Like if you if you believe in in your stuff, like yeah. people will believe in it. Yeah, there's so much right now being muttered about with a marketable story with a story that will sell. And you talked earlier about having a strong story and having that be really important. Is there any discrepancy that you see between a strong story and a marketable story and should there be and et cetera, et cetera? That's not a very clear question. So let me know if you want me to rephrase. I think what I can say to that is like, there are strong stories that each of us have. Mm. Like you have your strong stories. I have my strong stories, right? Each of us, we have our like sort of wheelhouse, our traumas, our passions, Mm. you know, and it's kind of like, there's a set of things that I know that I can work on for two years and get so stoked on what's going to come out. And Mm -hmm. those are my strong stories. And so then it's kind of like, these are the cards I'm holding in my hand. And I think the first work is like, what are the cards I have, which is the real artistic side of it. Mm. Kind of like a lot of free writing and testing and just talking to your fellow writers and and really sort of existing in a pure creative space. And then you're kind of like, okay, here, here are the cards that I have. Then you're looking out and you're like, okay, what kind of like cards are people looking for? Mm. What, what kind of, what am I seeing a lot of on TV right now? Or what am I listening? What am I hearing? And that's when the, um, a fit, like really kind of the efficiency comes in it because like to sell something, as you know, is a Titanic event and effort, right. That takes enormous resources. And so, you know, for me, it's kind of like, okay, what am I going to lean into here? You know, because to do, to go there, you have to start, flexing and leveraging all the relationships you've built all the doors you have to go knock on them and you can only go knock on them so many times mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you have these email addresses that like you know you get one email a year mm-hmm. and they'll read it mm-hmm. they'll read it but like you can't just throw them every idea mm-hmm. like every idea and so that's where that's where the kind of professional writer piece like enters into the equation it's like which of these cards does somebody out there want yeah that's such a good analogy for that When you were writing this, when you were in the writing phase, did you have a dream cast? And then when the contract was signed, were you like, oh my gosh, I hope they ask this person to play this person? Or what was that like for you? Oh my gosh. Uh, I definitely did not have a dream cast at all. It was so much more like primitive. Mm. It was just kind of like, I hope this gets made. I hope they like the story. You know, I just, it was so the aspiration of, of a, of a movie star or something was literally beyond anything that I was possibly thinking about. A lot of writers really do kind of write to an actor. And I, I think that's, I've kind of like the handful of times that I like, tried to do that. It's like, Oh wow, this is actually a really great tool. But it's not one that I had instinctively, you know, so I wasn't yeah. I wasn't writing to that. So I didn't have a dream cast. We got a dream cast. And I, I think that is to the credit of the director. Mm. This woman, Sarah Benson, who's this incredible director, and she comes from the New York theater scene. And that was like a little lesson is like, oh, get a great director mm. and your project just sort of like trickle down benefits of who you're collaborating with, like mm. smart people, but get smart people and talented people want to work with talented people. And on account of Sarah Benson, we, we put together this incredible cast of folks who mainly, you know, the project 
resonated with them. You know, they had the script and stuff, but like they wanted to work with her. And now I know why, Mm -hmm. because she's amazing, you know, Mm -hmm. but that's how, that's how that cast was sort of came together. And she'd worked with a lot of those people before. Was there any time during recording anything like that when, and I'm not sure, I haven't been on this side of things before, but during recording, did actors ever suggest changes or align or was it pretty much just, hey, please stick to the script? That's a great question. I think, so the only actor on the project who took liberties with the script was Bill Irwin, who some of you may or may not know, you've probably seen him in a lot of movies. He plays the senior pastor in my show, Six Sermons. His training is as a clown. Oh. He's, 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 yeah, he's um, a renowned clown and really well known in the, in the Broadway scene. He's won a couple of Tonys. He's like a Beckett expert. And he was the only actor who just went for it mm. doing that. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, because he is... 70 and just knows how good he is oh I love that um (laughs) he just knows he can do it like he just knows he can do it and I think that he just and I'm not talking like radical uh improvisation or anything but he had that facility which I think relates to his like sort of larger project as an artist as a clown which is like so much agile nimble in a total sense Mm -hmm. that affords that kind of freedom but the other actors were really uh really kind of loyal Mm. to the script until we like really invited a space for improvisation, Okay, which was great. You know, so it was like a lot of this is just kind of Sarah running this room, but that's kind of how it unfolded. We definitely took opportunities to get, I hadn't learned this word before this project, Walla. Do you know this word? (gasps) I do, but please, I'm I'm going (laughs) to assume that many people don't. So please explain the concept of Walla. I definitely didn't before this show. Walla is kind of, you know, my working definition is like sort of filler or like texture or like sort of words around the dialogue, which is so uh, at the heart of this project. But we had the actors do Walla. So for example, there's two characters, they're best friends and they work in a McDonald's. And, you know, if you listen to the show, you'll hear it. Like there's, they're, they're just at the beginning of a scene, they're chatting about like chicken nuggets and they're like, yeah, did you know that like we got this recipe from McDonald's actually just stole the KFC recipe and like and they're just riffing you know they're just riffing about chicken nuggets and it's gold uh, and it made it into the show so there was like sanctioned um, mm. like okay go be improv improvisers now which um, a lot of that really made that in in terms of like manipulating the actual script no one did that except for Bill Orwin and he did it very strategically and limited and always uh, to great result. Mm. So some of his, some of his lines are slightly improvised. Thank you for sharing that. As some of you know, I have a fictional podcast of my own and it was one of the simultaneously most alarming but also delightful and gratifying things is when I heard some of my lines spoken in ways that I hadn't really meant or intended but that actually worked better. Just what a what a delight. What a delight to hear your words interpreted by someone. I mean, it's just it's just a delight. So a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that's like the principal experience of working with great actors. So I do want to be respectful of your time and not keep you on the microphone for like a hundred hours, but are you going to go back to also writing stage plays or is it nope I'm 100% audio drama now or what's in the future for you 
Yeah. So again, I mean, I think like in a non-capitalist society where art was endorsed, mm. uh, mm-hmm. sort of structure structurally, I would still be writing plays, but I don't think I'm going to be writing plays because I'm still very much, you know, this project is a huge win for me. I hope it's going to do well. Like it's a huge accomplishment. I think it'll be get other projects, but like to continue to like support myself as a writer that precludes any kind of return to theater for me. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I tried to do that. You know, I applied to grad school and didn't get in and, you know, really tried to do that route and like wasn't able to find success there. So again, I mean, for me, it's like just really, it's just like practical. It's like, hey, like what, what do I want? I want to be a working writer. How can I do it? This is how I'm doing it, you know? So for me, like, I don't know, you know, maybe I should be more ambitious or something, but like for me, what I'm focused on is like, how can I tell stories that I care about and get paid for it? And like, that's what's kind of guiding my decisions. And right now, like theater does not fit those options. Unfortunately, I would love to. I mean, I love the theater. Yeah, I love the theater and I go to the theater and it's just kind of sacred. Mm. But yeah, I mean, again, that's like a call I make, you know, and I think like I have this conversation with a lot of peers, mm-hmm. you know, I have a really dear friend who's like an incredible photographer and an incredible art photographer. And he made the decision that he was, and he's had a ton of, he's had success as a commercial photographer as well. You know, he's had like week long, $30,000 shoots for like Mm. brands, but that's, he didn't want that. He wanted to be able to focus on taking the pictures that he wants to take. And they are amazing, beautiful pictures. And he has a job as a, as a teacher, you know, he teaches at you know a public school in new york city and it's like that's the path that he chose you know what i mean Mm -hmm. which like is awesome and and yeah i mean that again that's just like a call i made like for many years i was supporting i was a public school teacher and then i was a tutor like that was my path i was like i was working in education to support myself to do other things but then the decision i made is like okay i'm gonna try to just write what does that look like for me that was so poignant there's so much in that like so much emotion that I feel and I'm sure so many of our listeners feel from hearing you say that I always like to talk about writing and creativity as being in different seasons and I think that sometimes when you move towards something you feel like you're moving away from something else but really you're just taking a longer path to get there So I would love to think that, yeah, you're going to make so much money writing for these other projects that you're going to be able to fund your own theater projects, you know, that it'll work out. Or maybe I'm a little optimistic or naive, but I I really do believe, I hope that you get there. I hope to write a play again, too. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think you're absolutely right. And it's like, I do think it's important to make sure well, I mean, I, I'm co-writing a short horror film right now. Yeah. I know. See, this is my this is my new direction. It's called The Allegan Ape. It's getting shot this fall, directed by Marion Jemay. It's her her project, and she brought me on as a as a co-writer. And just to be so in that project, I'm not a showrunner. I'm not hiring people. I'm not doing any of that. There is no client. There is no producer. There is no Netflix future. There's just like an ape and this like guy in the woods and some scared students, you know, and I'm just kind of like there for that. And so I do think that like I'm sitting here being like, you have to make strategic decisions so you can get paid. 
at the same time, if you want to keep writing well, you do have to find opportunities where it's like just thrill, where it's like the good stuff. You know, yeah, like unless you give yourself that pure space, you know, eventually it's going to dull your powers if you're always thinking in terms of like, oh, what's an executive going to think of this pitch? So I'm so grateful for that collaboration and that opportunity. And per the idea of theater, like, it's not that I will never do it. I want to do a street show here. I used to be a street juggler. And I want to do sh- I, I want to do a show here. I have, like, big ideas for that. Well, how is hoping- this not in your bio? I know, right? I guess, it's, you know, You've yeah. ESPN. I know, right? I know. Yes, it should, it should be. Anyway, yeah. So I think it, like, it is important to do that. And I do think it's, it's like a balance, of course. But mm-hmm. I, I generally, I guess I would hold to my earlier point that, like, there's so much exciting stuff. There's so many exciting people. There are so many different paths that, like, if you want to make money writing, you need to plan. I would stick to that. And commit. Yeah, and commit. Which is hard. Yeah. I did do that as well. Just a small note. Readers know that it's not, or listeners know that it's not just you who's doing this. I had to make a decision. Last year, I made this decision. I was not going to do any freelance projects. I was not going to do any coaching or mentoring. I was just going to write. And that was a decision that I had to make and stick to even, you know, if financially it hasn't been the strongest move I've ever made. It can be hard, but it's... You know, you got to do what you need to do. Right. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, so for this project, I kind of had to like walk away for the final, for six sermons. I kind of had to walk Mm -hmm. away the last few months. The stress of the project, it just kind of broke me. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so the final few months of the project, like my creative partner, Matt Kagan, the co-showrunner of the project, he like held it on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I just had to stop. And so I think, I think it is, like you said, like it's all in a sort of a season. And so I do think there's these seasons of like the season of like hustle where you're out there and you're meeting people and you're making the calls and having the Zooms. And then there's the season of like, I'm going to work on somebody else's horror movie and I'm just going to love it. And I'm going to like rest because I can't do those other things now. And I think, yeah, the, the sort of macro journey is like getting to a place where it's not like recovery where you can sort of manage whatever you're doing or not do that right like that's kind of what happened to me with six sermons it was like such it's like i don't know if i want to be a showrunner again i don't know if i can handle that right so i think that's like another huge part of the journey is like all these things that you do you think you're just oh i want to be a showrunner it's like well um maybe i can you know like maybe i can't do that Or maybe I can't be in a relationship or a father. Like, you know, what's going to break? Like, you know, because all these things can't function concurrently. Yeah. Boy, I appreciate this so much. Aza, you have given us so much today, uh, just in this short time that we've spent with you. I feel like we could continue talking for about eight more hours and just never run out of things to talk about. I feel greedy asking this, but you've given us so much advice. Do you have a favorite piece of writing advice that you haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to share? Well, okay. Here's kind of a hack or like whatever part of my process that was like a real breakthrough for me was, so, you know, morning pages tradition. Yeah. So I kind of adapted that and made like, so basically now before I write, I'll do kind of like work morning pages so instead you know traditionally like the the book is like you're just kind of like your feelings and your life da, 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 da. so like for me i would fast long form write like sort of story like just story problems i'm like okay well i know that alexis like 
we need to somehow justify the fact that she goes back to his house. Like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? And it's just kind of like fast prose, you know, and it's just like churning through. I'm like, okay, well, how does that relate to this theme? And da, 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 da. And it's kind of like analytical, but also super generative and brainstormy and low stakes in the way that, you know, morning pages are supposed to be, but like, but it's still like the work, right. I'm still kind of just like story breaking and then I'll do that and then go back to the script. And so that, like, as soon as I started doing that is when I really started to write effectively or just much more efficiently. That was like a hack for me. So maybe there's someone out there that that'll work too, to sit down like pull up like act two, scene four, and you're just like dropped into like some kind of like conversation to me is so much of it is just like problem solving. So for me, it's easier to solve problems from a little bit more of an analytic, like prosy type point of view than to solve, like while concurrently concocting like loose and dynamic dramatic stakes in a moment between two human beings, like it's pretty Herculean to like concurrently sort of solve story problems. So by starting on the page, doing long form kind of riffing, it kind of like gave me a foundation to go back into the scenes. And then I would say the other thing that I really subscribe to is like, you know, Hemingway recommends stopping why it's going well. That was like kind of a, a rule of his, you know, if things are really going great is a good time to stop. I like that too, mm-hmm. because, and again, this is like coming from a point of privilege when I had time to work every day on something. I think it's different if you're really trying to like kind of carve out times to write than like if you have the time to write, write. But if you are in a place or have the discipline where you're up like from five to six fifteen every morning or whatever, if you have gotten to the place where you have a strong routine and structure, bookending it with first some like generative, like, okay, what the heck am I doing with the story? What am I trying to say? What's the problem here at this transition? Mm. And then ending it while like there's still like some hot magic in the lines on the scene for me was a really effective model to write a four hour show. Okay. There's no way you could have known this. Did you see my face when you were talking about morning pages? No, no. Okay. Those of you who are listening, I mean, obviously this is a podcast. Nobody was able to see my face, but this is just such weird synchronicity. I was actually talking with, do you know um, Maggie Croft? Don't. Okay. Well, that's fine. She and I were talking literally yesterday about morning pages and how we feel like we're pouring so much energy into them and then having to pivot away into our work. And you talking about marrying that process to, I'm gesticulating wildly for those of you who cannot see me, which is all of you. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. So seriously, thank you for saying that. Sometimes it would start with like the personal, Mm. you know, I think it's like also just like a phase of your life. Like right now, like I'm kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm super anxious about my show coming out. I don't know what I'm doing. Like my kid, you know, like, I, so now I like morning page and like write things about my life. And so it would start, it would be like maybe like half a page of like, okay, here I am. Like, good morning. I'm tired. Like whatever. Forgot to like take out the cat, whatever. I don't have, I don't even have a cat. I don't <laughs> even know why I said that. I forgot to take out the dog, blah, you know, like morning pages. But then, it, you know, I was like, so how do I get Alexis to the church? So that was like the evolution. Sometimes it did even start from the like traditional kind of orientation. It works really well in that way. 
so I do morning writing sessions where I write from eight to noon ish. Sometimes it's like five to nine or something, but I have a chunk in the morning when I write. And today I left off with what I call the Hemingway stop, which is you're in the middle of a really good idea, really good flow, and you don't want to overexert yourself. So you just step away. And I don't know you saying those two things. Sorry, because everything's about me. No, I'm kidding. That was just, that was fantastic. Asa, everything that we have talked about today has been so resonant. And I know that it is going to, I was going to say punch so many people in the heart, but I don't know if we necessarily want that, but it's going to hit home for a lot of people. And you being with us today has just been such a gift. I'm so grateful. Is there a place people can find you, connect with you, find your show, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, what would be most meaningful to me is to go listen to Six Sermons. That's the show that I've been talking about today. It's on Audible. You need a subscription to get to it, but you don't have to spend a credit. Okay. So it's it's if you're an Audible subscriber, you can just go and download it and it doesn't take a credit. If you're not an Audible subscriber, this show is worth your free trial. It's really great. But the name of the audio studio that my friend Matt and I started is called First Rodeo. And you can find us on the internet at First Rodeo Audio. Wonderful. There will be, of course, links to Six Sermons and First Rodeo Audio in the show notes for today's episode. I do encourage you to check those out. And gosh, Asa, thank you for being your wonderful, brilliant self today and for sharing so generously all of the insights and advice that you've shared with us today. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure.